Welcome to CME on ReachMD. The following activity, Advances in Severe Asthma, Highlights from CHEST 2019, is provided in partnership with Prova Education and is supported by an educational grant from Regeneron Pharmaceuticals. Before beginning this activity, please review the faculty disclosure statements as well as the learning objectives. Your faculty are Dr. Nicola A. Hanania and Dr. Reynold A. Panettieri, Jr. Nearly half of patients with asthma have poorly controlled disease despite the availability of guidelines recommended stepwise treatment approach that emphasize continuous assessment and readjustment of treatment. This comes in part due to suboptimal guideline implementation, over-reliance on short-acting beta agonists, and underutilization of maintenance therapy. Recent advances in our understanding of pathophysiology of asthma have led to improved control, particularly for those patients with moderate to severe disease who remain uncontrolled to current traditional asthma therapies. This is CME on ReachMD, and I'm Dr. Nick Hanania. I'm director of the Airway Clinical Research Center at Baylor College of Medicine in Houston, Texas. And with me is Dr. Ray Panitari. Ray, welcome to the program. Hey, Nick. It's a pleasure to be here uh, in uh, in New Orleans with you at CHESS 2019. I'm the Vice Chancellor for uh, the Rutgers Institute for Translational Medicine and Science, a physician scientist and a practicing uh, physician in pulmonary critical care medicine focused on severe asthma. So to start off, Ray, uh, why is it that we continue to see uncontrolled asthma patients despite adequate therapy and optimal, optimization of their management? And how does the information here from CHEST meeting help us in understanding this and maybe help our patients? So, Nick, uh, great to see you and thanks. Uh, uh, you know, the CHEST meeting here in uh, New Orleans has been uh, fascinating and it's really giving us a lot of insight into some of the obstacles that we as clinicians uh, face in managing patients with severe uncontrolled asthma. Now, for those listening, what's the big takeaway? Big takeaway is consider the pathogenesis of asthma or the phenotype endotype is T2 high versus T2 low. And that is going to be characterized exclusively through the use of biomarkers, that is the serum eosinophil count, the total IgE, the specific IgE, and in some instances, pheno, that is the fractional expired nitric oxide levels. These three, these three incredibly important biomarkers will characterize a patient as T2 high versus T2 low. That has implications for the management of the disease. So let me transition to a question uh, that I know is near and dear to your heart, and it, it's uh, very relevant to the Liberty, uh, the Liberty study, one of the registration studies, and, and the post hoc analysis. Uh, uh, one abstract that really caught my eye was the fact that the age of onset or the duration of the asthma uh, didn't really suggest responder, non-responder to dupilumab, right? That is the anti-IL-4 uh, receptor alpha antagonist or antibody, uh, that it worked across all duration of disease and onset of the disease. Uh, 
Can you uh, tell us a little bit more details, Nick, on that study? I know it uh, it probably caught your eye too. Yes, and I actually presented the data this morning uh, on this uh, particular topic. In fact, when we looked at the Quest data, which included 1,900 uh, patients with moderate severe asthma, we actually looked at patients' age of onset. Obviously, this is self-reported. So we looked at patients who had asthma before age 40 or had asthma at age 40 or, or above. And, and particularly, we were interested whether the response to Dupilumab, these are all patients with moderate severe asthma, we wanted to see if the response is different. And indeed, there was a slight difference where we saw a better effect on exacerbation reduction with Dupilumab if they had late onset asthma, but the lung function improvement was very consistent in both groups. Um, you know, that, that tends to bring up the question, why is it that late onset asthmatic have a slightly higher response on exacerbation with dupilumab, whether they, their original therapy, they're not using the inhaler correctly, whether they have more severe disease and thus there is more room for improvement, that remains to be answered. Yeah, I was interested, uh, Ray, in uh, one of the sessions you were part of, at least uh, as a presenter, um, uh, on personalization of therapy in asthma. We were just talking about, you know, how it's important uh, to personalize. Uh, and and I'm, I'm just wondering what your thoughts about it and, and if, you, um, if you can tell us uh, uh, something about that, uh, that would be very helpful. Yeah, thanks, Nick. Uh, that session was an exciting session. I presented along with three of uh, other colleagues who, who really addressed a fascinating question. How do we characterize adherence? How do we examine uh, patient-reported outcomes more definitively? And what I presented was the architecture or the signature of the provider and the patient's alignment with improved outcomes. So let me start with what we showed. Uh, this was a study in Chronicle where we asked an interesting question. How well do providers predict control as compared to patients? Now, this has been studied in other venues, uh, but what was intriguing here is we used the ACT test to characterize the patient reported outcomes and to correlate that with the physician's notion of control. And what we found is when the patient was asked, is your asthma controlled? Yes, no. They, 75 to 80% of the time, was very accurate in the control of their disease as demonstrated by the ACT test. Now, take that same group and ask the provider, is this patient controlled? Yes, no. It was a coin toss when you compared the provider's notion of control to the ACT test. In other words, the provider could not accurately determine what the ACT test was going to tell us about the patient's control. Yet if the patient said they were uncontrolled, the ACT test concordance was spot on. That's fascinating. That really suggests to us as providers, asking a patient how they're doing may be helpful in, in characterizing their disease, but our own preconceived notion of control was inadequate. 
So what's the takeaway from that? The takeaway is really we need to do objective measures of validated uh, questionnaires like ACT to determine whether the patient is controlled and uncontrolled. Or maybe, Nick, what we do is simply ask the patient, are you controlled? And the preconceived notion that we have in our own head takes the back seat. Now, one of our other colleagues looked at the digital readout of rescue inhaler. And what we found, and maybe not surprising, is the digital readout, the imprinting of that, really suggests patients are using the rescue inhaler far more often than the provider predicts or that even the patient reports face-to-face. So these were some of the real hot topics. I think we're learning about pragmatic real-life studies. How do we characterize adherence? How do we characterize disease severity? How do we characterize what the patient really is doing versus our preconceived notions? These are some of the challenges that we face, but hopefully will improve in the future. So Nick, you presented uh, several abstracts at the conference, one of them on reducing severe exacerbations in corticosteroid-dependent severe asthma, and another looking at omelizumab in patients with fixed airflow obstruction. Can you give us some of those highlights? I found the abstract fascinating. Yeah, yes, thanks, Ray. So the first abstract was uh, an, an analysis of data from the large venture study, which was... Uh, as you know, Ray was published last year, and it looked at patients with severe asthma who are oral steroid dependent. Uh, and the, the question was in the main study to see whether dupilumab, an anti-IL-4 receptor, can actually allow us to reduce or, or stop oral steroids in these severe asthmatics. And the main uh, study shows that it can, compared to placebo, it, it can reduce the dose and uh, or, uh, or even... Uh, amount of oral steroids the patient needs, but at the same time can improve lung function and reduce exacerbation. So there are really three advantages. So in this uh, sub-analysis of the venture, we really posed the question whether lung function improvement at 12 weeks, and we defined it as either improvement by 100 ml or 200 ml at 12 weeks, can actually uh, reflect or either improvement or no improvement make a difference in the exacerbation uh, reduction uh, at, uh, at the end of the study, uh, which is the 24 weeks, it was a six-month study. And, and the answer is simply, it doesn't. So uh, there's really no, even though there was a trend that patients with higher lung function improvement had probably a better effect on exacerbation reduction, but we've, we saw also reduction exacerbation in those who did not have uh, big lung function improvement. And then the second abstract we presented was on a study that we were involved in many years ago uh, involving omalizumab, an anti-IgE, called the EXTRA study. And we were interested to see also regarding lung function improvement but here we looked at baseline characteristics of the patient, and we wanted to see if uh, somebody with fixed airway obstruction at baseline, we defined it as an FEV1, FVC ratio less than 0.7, uh, whether patients with low bronchodilate reversibility 
meaning improvement less than 12% at baseline to albiterol. So both of these subgroups we looked at, whether that can um, reflect a change in exacerbation or uh, a change in the lung function over the one year of the study. The, the bottom line, what we found is that bronchodilator reversibility, 12% or more, was an important determinant of reduction in exacerbation, meaning patients who have more than 12% reversibility at baseline had actually more pronounced reduction in exacerbation, whether they have fixed airway obstruction or not. When we looked at lung function improvement, there was a difference. Those, the only patients who had good lung function improvement, which was significant, were those with bronchodilator reversibility, meaning the ones who have more than 12% and no fixed airway obstruction were the ones who had the best lung function improvement in the one-year study. Where we concluded that those patients with fixed airway obstruction and no reversibility may actually constitute a different phenotype in asthma. Uh, particularly with omeluzumab, I think uh, the, the, the notion that it may not improve lung function in general is not correct because there are some subgroups of these patients can indeed have lung function improvement. We're just trying to define which of these subgroups. In this analysis, we found that bronchodilator reversibility at baseline is a good uh, determinant. So those were really interesting studies. That first study that you talked about with the Pilamem is very important because we like to almost use a fail-fast phenomenon when we use biologics. We have choices now. But what I'm hearing clearly is that repo, that change in the FEV1 early in the institution of a drug like the Pilamem may not tell the complete tale with regard to exacerbations and by extension, even OCS burden relief. That's a very important point. So how does the practitioner, the provider, utilize that data? Well, if you don't get a big change, or if you do get a big change, there could be better benefits or the determination of a responder takes a little bit more time than us quickly looking at the big change in an FEV1 early. Now, the other point you mentioned is those patients who had twitchy airways or more twitchy airways in the case of the umelizumab may have a different outcome uh, long-term with regard to exacerbations. In both of these points, in both of these studies, the metric of success is exacerbation because exacerbations lead to greater OCS burden and the consequences for adverse effects of our therapy. So I think these points are really elucidating, Nick. Great job. These abstracts are going to maybe change behavior of the provider in the prediction of response. Mm -hmm. that, that was the whole purpose of this. You know, we had a session also at CHEST on biomarkers and where we are with biomarkers. I know you're interested in this area, Ray. And one of the sessions I uh, spoke at, we discussed both sputum and, and blood biomarkers, but also exhaled biomarkers. And uh, another speaker talked about airway hyperresponsiveness as a potential biomarker, more so for diagnostic uh, purposes. Uh, and um, uh, so, for example, I talked about uh, the, the whether uh, blood eosinophils can be good predictors of uh, 
of response, but also good prognostic biomarkers, and certainly they may identify patients at high risk of exacerbation. Uh, I also talked about some of the biomarkers in the pipeline in blood that are still being looked at. Certainly, some of these are eosinophilic proteins, and, uh, and then also talked about sputum, although many centers don't do sputum induction, but certainly sputum biomarkers may be uh, better, although not as practical as blood biomarkers. So, uh, Ray, this has been really very valuable discussion, and I thank you for your time. And, and uh, but before we wrap up, uh, Ray, uh, do you have any take-home message for our audience? Yeah, Nick, this was a pleasure. Wonderful chatting about the hot items at Chess uh, 2019. So what are my key takeaways? My key takeaway is stay tuned. There's going to be a lot more you're going to hear. This is a new world with regard to the management of severe asthma. We've never had biologics this effective. The whole concept of precision medicine is thrilling, and it's come to a station near you. We now have these tools. Uh, I feel that we're even better off than the rheumatologists using anti-TNF drugs in RA. We're talking about precise therapies for severe asthma. Key takeaway, got to measure biomarkers. Without biomarkers, you're not going to know if a patient's T high, high T2, low T2, or the specific category of T2, be it mast cell basophil-driven disease versus eosinophilic-driven disease versus epithelial-mediated inflammation. There's overlap. But this is a great time to really discriminate the right patient for the right drug at the right time. Nick, what are your key takeaways at CHESS 2019? Well, I'm pretty excited about asthma. Of course, uh, we know it's a very old disease, but the new look at the asthma is exciting because I think we have some more to offer to our patients with severe disease. Of course, I did, I did take away like some of the things you talked about uh, trying to identify the subtypes of asthma, the predictors of response, involving the patients uh, in decision-making, but also um, more personalizing the approach to treatment and, 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 and really believing that this is not a one-size-fits-all disease and uh, are a very important takeaway from this uh, meeting. But also another takeaway is that we're not there yet. We have other things to do and we need to look more and more for both novel interventions, but also looking at outcomes. As you said, we're, we're, we're getting there. The precision medicine for asthma is something that we really need to, uh, to work hard on. Um, uh, and, and hopefully we will get there sometime. Well, with that, I'd like to thank you again, Ray, for uh, this nice conversation and wish you a very good day. Nick, I really appreciate this wonderful opportunity. It's always a pleasure chatting about uh, asthma. This activity has been provided in partnership with Prova Education. To receive your free CME credit, be sure to complete the post-test and evaluation by visiting reachmd.com slash Prova. This is CME on ReachMD. Be part of the knowledge.